all you gotta do, you gotta make sure your fish is like seasoned really damn well so that you're, if you have that nice scent of garlic or, or rosemary or something. You're listening to a podcast created by the Jack's Way Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to episode 15 of the podcast. Uh, we are the Jacksway Collective. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about philosophy, short stories, and uh, the odd film. And our conversations often dance between in-depth discussion and absolute madness. And so today, um, to kick off the new year, it's actually just going to be myself, Yana, and Oliver on the podcast today. Today, we're actually going to be discussing a short story by Daniel Orozco, and the story is titled Orientation. And so just for the listeners out there, um, this is an extremely short story. We highly recommend you all give it a read before you listen to the episode. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, and then, yeah, you guys can weigh in on the discussion as well. Next episode, we will be reading Hilary Putnam's Brain in the Vat, so feel free to go ahead and download that now so you can weigh in on the discussion two weeks from now. Um, Other than that, please go ahead and check us out on iTunes. Go ahead and give us a rating or a written review. That's super, super helpful with us uh, growing the podcast, Um, as well as any other podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, um, whatever it is. And finally, we would just love to hear from our listenership uh, as well. Feel free to go ahead and send us an email at jackswaycollective at gmail.com. And we'll actually go ahead and read your email right on the air. So we highly encourage you guys to reach out to us, um, whether it's with a story suggestion, some sort of argument against one of the absurd things that we say, or just you have thoughts on the show and where it should be going. So... I guess, like, let's just go ahead and I'll hand it over to Oliver first. Tell us a little bit about why and how you found the story. And then I'll go ahead and just give a kind of brief overview and summary for the audience here. Who? Why and how I found the story. Well, this was a little bit of a another one of those scenarios where we go in blind. You know, we're trying to warm up for the new year. So we looked for a short story that was short. We could read quickly. And the topic of this story we thought we'd have fun with, and I think we're going to do that today. Yeah, and I think it's, it's now that I'm thinking about it, strangely appropriate. It's the new year. Everyone's having a hell of a time getting back after the Christmas holidays into their office. So what a perfect pick of a short story um, orientation. This is one that really just takes uh, the modern workplace and just turns it into some sort of absurd um, nightmare situation. So for all of you out there um, getting back to your office jobs, this is a great read. Um, it might be even a little bit cathartic for you to, to read and then um, look at your own workspace and, and um, figure out what applies and what does not. So just to talk a little bit about the, the kind of brief overview of what the story is, and then um, Oliver and I are going to go back and forth just to talk a little bit about some of the specifics and the characters involved with the story as well. So basically the structure of the story is a single narrator who seems to be some sort of, I'm guessing, member of the HR team in some sort of standard office job. 
And the entire story is him speaking to the reader, who is the new employee at this at this job, going through the standard orientation process that we've all been through, and just basically giving a brief overview of the company and its rules, its many, many, many rules, and um, giving a little bit of insight into each each member of the office and how they fit into the company as a whole as well. So again, very short read. Recommend you go give it a give it a quick read over and then join us on our discussion. And the funny part is, is that now that I'm thinking about it, he gives way too much information on the first day. <laughs> yeah, like even just reading the short story, you got to read it a couple times to take it in. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about who is involved in the story and what the workplace is like uh, broadly and the kind of rules involved in working at this company. It really does seem like a kind of parody on every single like entry-level phone calling, um, low-level, entry-level job. Mm -hmm. I assumed, Um, I thought at the end that he was the photocopy boy or something, but I could be Perhaps, perhaps. Let's just, let's just go ahead and read the first sentence and we'll maybe, we'll draw our conclusions (laughs) from there. And he starts off in this kind of amazing deadpan way that I think, uh, tell me if you agree with me, it does remind me a lot of um, our story that we read by Kafka, when he describes these like insane happenings in this very deadpan, like monotone way. So let's just read the first paragraph just to kind of give the listeners a sense of what we're talking about here. It says, um, those are the offices and these are the cubicles. That's my cubicle there. And this is your cubicle. This is your phone. Never answer your phone. Let the voicemail system answer it. This is your voicemail system manual. There are no personal phone calls allowed. And so already alarm bells are going off in the first uh, uh, two or three sentences. I got a weird sense um, in the first sentence. It reminded me so much of uh, Sorry to Bother You, the way oh, that he yeah. interviews in the beginning. And yeah. like, yeah, listen, we'll hire fucking anyone. But what's they're saying? Stuss, stick to the script. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. So in the same way, like the first thing that you learn at your job is to basically like don't do anything individual, don't do anything creative, mm-hmm. don't do anything outside of the bounds of what we just told you, stick to the script, or in this case, like, don't even pick up the goddamn phone. <laughs> yeah, it definitely has that aesthetic to this office, or I'm also picturing workaholics, that kind of office. That might be the perfect way to put it, man. Like, depressing, plain. There is never in this in this uh, entire story any sort of description of the actual environment. It doesn't exactly use many adjectives. There's clearly mm-hmm. no art on the wall. Cubicles, cubicles, phones, and that's basically it. Mm-hmm. So from there, of course, we get revealed the first absurd kind of rule of the office. Here's your phone. Don't use it. Let's kind of just give a kind of quick bullet point list of some of the other um, insane rules that we have to deal with um, in this office. So we got emergency phone calls must be approved by a supervisor. And then if the supervisor isn't there, you got to talk to Philip, who will then check in with Clarissa if you can make this emergency phone call. Which, like, this one was crazy. (laughs) To me, it was like, this is exactly the opposite of what an emergency phone call is. In order to like make one at all, you have to go through like three different like bureaucratic steps um, to even to even do it. So again, just fucking ridiculous to off the bat. I like this rule a lot. You must pace your work within the eight-hour window. 
If you have 12 hours of work, you have to get it done within eight. And if you have one hour of work, you have to drag it out for the eight hours. I mean, this one is a blessing and a curse at the same time, right? Like Exactly. <laughs> pretty much. I think I think maybe the the story is really trying to be like the most stereotypical, like take all the most stereotypical elements of the most monotonous day-to-day job and then apply it to an actual situation and like the eight hour the eight hour structure that the the restrictiveness of what you can and can't do, even just in terms of the hours that you work, like clear as day here. What else do we got? I'm just highlighting some of the good ones that I liked. Okay. Never never talk to Annika Bloom, which we'll get into later, I think. Save that one. <laughs> okay. Well that's a little teaser for later on the up. Uh, My favorite, I think, was you are allowed to heat up food in the microwave, but not allowed to cook food in the microwave. <laughs> Just picturing in the office, like in the kitchenette, trying to sneak that in and then having an awkward eye to eye with someone. Are you, oh my God. Are you cooking food in there? <laughs> That's funny. There was actually, just to give a kind of very mysterious insight into my, my old job, but there was a uh, situation where someone actually microwaved and reheated, reheated some of their fish from the day before. Oh. And it, it turned into a big debacle on Slack and some, uh, some shit went down. Some shit went down. Um, <laughs> so Fishgate 2019 is the beginning of, of my year. Um, I feel like bringing fish to work is always a bad idea. <laughs> Unambiguously. And that, that's coming from someone who has done it and has heated it up in the office as well. <laughs> Ambiguously a bad idea. There's got to be some sort of like thing you can put into the like, I don't know. It's like a scented candle version of the mic. <laughs> All you got to do, you got to make sure your fish is like seasoned really damn well, so that if the smell is going to just like disseminate to the <laughs> office, at least like you're you have that nice scent of garlic or, or rosemary or something. This um, might be like a funny list to to get feedback on and to build. Is like, what are the worst lunches you can bring? To an office space. Oh, yeah. So I mean, we've already we've already like thrown up the number one worst. Um, <laughs> but I would love to know what two, three, and four are. Oh, this one's good. If you bring a lunch, put a little something extra in the bag for Barry. <laughs> we'll get into that too. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Actually, that one's really good. And the best part about this whole like bit where he describes everything is just it's the delivery of the of the narrator as well Mm -hmm. just so plain and like he can go from saying the most basic to the most like cruel to the most absolutely absurd thing and say it in the exact same tone the whole way through and you just you're reading it as such and it's just like it's hilarious to to kind of like be like hey are you are you are you being serious right now yeah and Um, as the new as the new employee you just accept these things yeah, exactly. It's not like you have any leverage, right? <laughs> like on your first day of work, you're just like, okay, all right. <laughs> you're like the overdressed, like peppy, like new <laughs> yeah, exactly. person. Um, yeah, of course, you got to accept all these at face value. And actually, one of the best parts about the story is that it does kind of put the reader in that position of mm. reminding everyone of their first day of their very first job out of college or whatever yeah. it is. Um, you finally made it to the office job, you know, a nice cushy office job and like, this is what you're entering. <laughs> and then at the like, in day three, you're like, I wish I didn't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> that is if you make it to day three without having that realization. Oh my God. <laughs> That's good. Another like request to the listeners, if you have any just absolutely absurd um, office rules that let's hear them. We got or, or bad bad job experiences. <laughs> yeah, just in general. Just in general. Actually, let us know. I actually had a job in the summer that I I lasted three hours. Did I ever tell you this? <laughs> no, I didn't. 
Okay, I got to hear it then. Okay, I was like, just, you know, looking for some sort of general labor job in the summer at this greenhouse. Mm -hmm. I show up. It's a lot more hectic than I expect. I'm like, this is fucking miserable. (laughs) And then there's like a break at the three-hour mark, and I'm like, I'm out of here. (laughs) I just left. And you were, did you just like sneak the fuck out of there? I was just like, I went to some guy who I thought was a supervisor, and I was like, yeah, can you tell my other supervisor that I'm just, this is not for me? (laughs) It's so bad. Like, you know, I feel like I'm an entitled asshole doing that, but. I don't know, Life's man. too short. Way, Life's like, too short yeah, for that. There you go. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Like the three-hour exit is in so many ways like a bit more yeah, graceful yeah. than like the three-day exit, also, right? Also, I was, thinking, I was thinking I have to leave now because if I'm going to leave at the end of the day or not come back, they're not going to pay me anyways. So I got to get the fuck out. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's all sunk cost <laughs> at that point. <laughs> get the oh, hell out of there. I can't believe I didn't tell you this. Yeah, that's hilarious. I had no idea. That's uh, a risky take. I'm sure you found that on the Craigslist or Kijiji yeah. <laughs> or something. Too. If, if a job is too easy to get, something is wrong. Yeah, can't disagree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully okay. my future employers aren't listening to this. And Anyways. Well, hopefully your future jobs are it's just extremely difficult to, uh, to land. But when you do land, <laughs> yeah. and you're in paradise, man. Um, okay, so let's, I, again, just as there are a ton of rules, there are a ton of employees in this, uh, in this company. And one of the nice things about such a short story, he introduces a lot of characters, but he does so just by giving them nice little vignettes. He'll dedicate a paragraph to each of them. And again, like it's not going it's not dedicating paragraphs and paragraphs to each one of them describing their character but a lot is packed into each one of their paragraphs dedicated to the their description and i think that's because the way that he describes each character is again just as he doesn't really describe how the office looks he doesn't really describe the physical features much of the uh, each individual character but instead he goes about introducing them by describing their behaviors that they do in the office and just kind of giving some broad insight into their personal lives as well and so for me much more effective way to learn quickly about a character than and getting way more information than I would if I got descriptions about the color of the shirt that they were wearing or the frame the shape of the frame of their glasses or anything like that for me learning about how they behave in an office context that was the best route in a short amount of time to understand Mm -hmm. their characters yeah that's a good insight it tells you so much about the character he just gives you the details you need to know and you learn so much about them. Mm-hmm. 100%. And like he goes in, uh, uh, maybe we could just use one as an example here. Um, any ideas for, for a good, a good um, case? How about, how about let's go with Ru- Russell Nash first. Okay. Yeah, so here, this one is kind of maybe the perfect encapsulation of like the estranged office worker, I guess. The one who, who has the bleak future, the one that you truly feel bad for. Okay, so like here's just a quick snippet of Russell Nash is kind of like described here just to give you uh, uh, half of the paragraph. It says, Russell Nash has put on 40 pounds and grows fatter with each passing month, nibbling on chips and cookies while peeking glumly over the partitions at Amanda Pierce, engorging himself at home on cold pizza and ice cream while watching adult videos on TV. So... Again, if these behaviors of gorging himself, watching porn at home, like getting fatter, that that just gives you the perfect example of the stereotypical like 
plateaued, to say the least, office worker who has kind of no future yeah, and continues lonely, in this level job. What a lonely guy, it seems like. Yeah, uh, 100% man. And one of, like, probably not the most tragic character in this entire, in this entire um, thing. But I think that this one may be the most illustrative of what the monotonous workday lifestyle can do to a human being. A lot of the other faults or, like, sadnesses or tragedies that have to do with the other characters have to do much more with their personal life. Whereas Russell Nash's condition seems to be almost a direct result. He is living in his personal life the same type of life that he is living in the office as well, which is this Mm -hmm. dull, repetitive, meaningless, monotonous life. And uh, uh, if snacking on chips is representative at all of like what he's doing in the office like that that parallel is i think most clear in the example of russell nash Mm -hmm. it's like a lot of existentialism could be extracted from this character i think so like here here is the 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 meaningless void of a human existence um produced by the meaningless void of an unfulfilling workplace let's talk about just to give another character who's the one with the autistic kid uh, Amanda yes so to kind of give someone who's on the other end of the spectrum this is actually Russell Nash's love interest and so this is how you learn about Amanda Pierce it says Amanda Pierce is in the cubicle to your right she has a six-year-old son named Jamie who is autistic her cubicle is plastered from top to bottom with the boys crayon artwork sheet after sheet of precisely drawn concentric circles and ellipses in black and yellow she rotates them every other Friday. And then it goes on to talk about the home life of Amanda. She's a lawyer, but, or sorry, her husband is a lawyer and subjects her to an escalating array of painful and humiliating sex games to which Amanda Pierce reluctantly submits. She comes to work exhausted and freshly wounded each morning, wincing from the abrasions on her breasts or the bruises on her abdomen or the second degree burns on the back of her thighs. So this is uh, uh, kind of the opposite. With Russell, the workplace seems to be manifesting his behaviors and his conditions in the non-workplace and in his home life. Whereas here, it seems to be the reverse. It's actually Amanda's home life that is infecting her her presence at the office. Do do you agree with that? Hmm. Do you mean like she is able to continue on working or like she's able to get her work done regardless of this situation at home or I guess this could be me looking into it they're in the in a the wrong way but to me the causal the causal factor for um Russell Nash's sad existence is being at the workplace and then oh okay you know like some some byproducts of that is like okay he's got a shitty boring home life that's monotonous as well whereas this one What's contributing to her, to Amanda's tragic condition is actually not the workplace, but her home life. Oh, right. And then that's, again, like uh, 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 inflated by the workplace as opposed to the causal factor is at home and not at work for her. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, So would you say that, actually, I think that's looking too deeply. I was going to say, like, is this her sanctuary almost, this mundane workplace? Or I think that might be, look. I don't know. Like at the same time, she is the one who actually, uh, like, like you said, she has this tragic situation at home. But she is the one who does put in the most effort in the actual workplace itself. She is the one who brings the danishes and like organizes uh, the Christmas party. 
That's Gwen. Oh shit! Oh no! Okay, but she okay, also has. But I think your point about that still relates to Gwen, which we can get to. Okay. Uh, uh, so what's what's Gwen's backstory then? Gwen is the one who is crazy about penguins. She has this thing called like this little thing on her desk or whatever called Pen Gwen. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny though. I love a good pun. <laughs> Okay, so I don't think we should go through every single character. Yeah. But that's just a good sense of, like, how the characters are introduced and described by the author in this kind of interesting, like, very, very tight-packed paragraph way. Um, really interesting way to introduce a, a bulk of characters and make them all unique and different and interesting. Um, so kudos to, to the author for that one. In, the, in this story where the personal and the work are separated in this absurd, extreme way, we actually also simultaneously know the most about each individual character's personal life. So although the office is having the strict divide between what you do in the workday and what you do in your personal life, when you have this kind of omniscient narrator, you realize that every single one of these characters, whether or not they're succeeding or struggling at work, have these complex and crazy and tragic and sad lives outside of work as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, just illuminating and... Um, a little bit sad as well. Mm -hmm. And they're also, it's, these facts about them are addressed through the narrator, but nothing is like ever done about them or it doesn't seem like any actions are taken to help these characters out at this works, workplace. Yeah, just like Kafka, right? There's this strange detached sense from the narrator that just kind of objectively kind of coldly describes their tragic situations and then proceeds to talk about how they don't give a fuck about them yeah. as well. It's almost like it's almost like that saying, like, leave your problems at home when you come to work or something. Yeah, and it's like that is illustrated throughout the entire story as it's like, okay, this is this is happening to them. But if you don't let it affect their work, then that's fine. If you do, then this happens, this quote yeah. is throughout the entire story. They may be let go. You may be let go. Um, <laughs> what a euphemism, right? Like, and this whole, and the through line of this is like, okay, clearly the workplace gives zero fucks about these people's personal lives. And then simultaneously in the story, it talks about all of the benefits that the company oh, yeah. gives them and like how invested they are in the well-being of their employees and the fact that they have, that they give them free Costco memberships and free perks at the office and they have a coffee machine. When put in contrast to this like detached tone that the company actually takes to the individual human beings, it's just, it's just absurd and, and yeah. you know, induces despair in me, to be honest. Like that part in the story when... He's he's mentioning the healthcare package and he uses Larry or something, I think his name is, as the example with the six daughters. He's yeah. saying like he's saying like or she, they're saying, Well, if his six daughters were to be killed, Larry would still be covered. So it's all good. <laughs> and like not just killed, uh, the paragraph is It's a lot more drastic than that. Stricken with a hideous degenerative muscle disease or some rare toxic blood disorder, sprayed with semi-automatic gun, gun firework on a, on a class field trip. Oh my god! <laughs> so the, the company has that covered, but as far as like the day-to-day -day of you know, living husband with beating up wife or you know anything like that, but they have an insurance plan and Costco Costco memberships and direct deposit. So, <laughs> so they're good. They've covered all their bases as the as the employer. Okay, so I want to maybe talk about like this kind of, this divide obviously is very, very strict in this story, 
but I want to maybe like think about in a perfect world, like how, how do you combine these two things? Because at least how I see it, the workplace is somewhere where you spend at least eight hours a day. And most people, it's probably closer to nine or 10. And that is a huge, huge, huge portion of your human existence. So, and as far as I'm concerned, that is your personal life, is your work life as well. Those two are inextricably, inextricably linked to each other. And so no matter how hard the company might try to separate those two things out, it's impossible because you're just dealing with the mere existence of human beings for um, two thirds of their waking life. Mm-hmm. So given that that is the case, what what should we be doing in terms of if you're a, if you're an employer what is like what is the ideal situation um, to strike a balance between these two things because obviously you don't want to have an employer being caught up in the personal lives of every single one of its employees that's too much to ask I don't think anyone's saying that but is there a middle ground here to to reach and does our modern life get anywhere close to that mm, yeah and does it change on job by job as well um, yeah some jobs cater to that more so than others like some jobs you know it's your construction worker just build it go home yeah i wonder if like if the attitude the employee takes to his work is like increased level of commitment maybe the the reverse should be true as well so like what you say if you're going to be like a summer job cutting grass or like being a laborer or whatever you don't you're not investing at all your personal oh, into yeah. your work then of course you wouldn't expect the same in return but if yeah. you have a job where like okay no like someone here is they've invested X amount of time in their life or like this is a serious job for them or they're like investing in your company, should then the company itself reciprocate accordingly? Hmm. Because even though like the actual number of hours worked is the same in the summer job case and in the case of the more career-driven job, the actual investment from the human being beyond mere hours of work is much, much greater. Yeah. But then maybe it gets maybe it gets a little bit complicated when if someone were to say, well, what is this person doing in terms of like the complication of the job skills and stuff like that. But then I guess that's, that's devaluing people based on what they can do. Mm -hmm. And I think like, I mean, to some degree it's inescapable, but the employer has to kind of reduce their employees to a certain degree to their mere economic value. Yeah. Whether or not they give their heart into the job or they truly care about it or not at the end of the day, like, that that raw economic value, what kind of profit margin or what kind of um, like gains are you making is truly the only metric, I guess, that would matter. So is that okay? Should that, ought that be the case? I don't know. I think that maybe we're moving in the right direction in terms of employers investing a little bit more in their employees, at least in terms of like modern office jobs, obviously a very privileged kind of job to work in but mm-hmm. if you are able to get into that kind of job and you know be able to afford the university degree to get you there and all that kind of thing then at least in my personal experience yes the trade-off is better um and when you experience a work environment like that the there's a kind of feedback loop where the increased level of investment from the employer leads to an increased level of investment from the employee as well mm-hmm. so it's actually in the best interest of the company to increase that level of investment because one, it'll make your employees more happy, but two, it will actually increase that raw economic value as well. And again, like, of course, we, we know full well from our own university degree that that can take to go too far as well. And uh, the company can become this all consuming thing of a person's life um, where they live on a 
campus and they make every single one of their purchases, you know, on the, on this campus or they stay on location or like, of course it can be all consuming as well. So this is why I say like, you need to strike this balance. Yeah. I could see that happening for someone who is in their twenties working at a, a nice place that has, is like a campus style. They're single. Like there's no, and you, if you have a lot of friends at work, there's like no reason to go home or not. Mm -hmm. It's more reason to stay at work. Yeah. And, uh, uh, what is the term? Um, the golden shackles of the employer, right? Um, the golden shackles where you have all these perks and then you instill in your employees this kind of sense of like, Oh shit, like look at all the company is giving me. How can I ever leave? Or how can I work any less than 13 hours a day? Or, how can I possibly like leave, leave the residence supplied to me by, by like, uh, there's a certain point of diminishing returns for the um, uh, employee as well. We're like, okay, the, um, the employer has invested so much to like now shit, like I'm just, I'm in way too deep and you don't want that either. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the way that I see it is like, still you exist at the workplace. Um, what your are your thoughts? Life is your, is your work life? Yeah. What are your thoughts on you know, scenarios where we have a three-day weekend and maybe we work longer days or those sorts of scenarios? Yeah. uh, So my experience, the kind of opening up um, for the ability of personal autonomy in someone's work is just wholeheartedly a good thing. Um, The ability to kind of, again, go outside of that restrictive eight-hour day um, framework that we see in the story and to instead like to a certain degree with it with of course being reined in some sort of freedom within that within certain restrictions as well that's a space you can navigate and make things just actually more efficient and, and better for you so in my opinion it's awesome but at the same time it, it's also a personality thing some people also cannot yeah. deal with such such freedom and responsibility and then um, they get nothing done and they neglect or like then they become like a kind of useless um, agent for the company because they have too much freedom. So yeah. it's also uh, a personality difference that can totally change that as well. Just as certain personality types would work better in a bounded eight hour day workspace, certain personality types would work better in one that's a bit more uh, free and autonomous. Mm-hmm. I guess some people are just designed to be pawns. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they're, they're, uh, they'd fit right in at this office here. <laughs> But then I get, again, comes back to work shouldn't define you as a person. Mm-hmm. 100%. But it does. 100%. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we'll put this in or not, but like you can ask, you ask people from the West, oh, like, who are you? What do you do? Almost the first thing that everyone says in the West is, oh, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I, yeah. uh, this is, I am my occupation. Um, whereas you ask people, <laughs> you ask people in the East, they're like, oh, I'm a father or, oh, I'm a, I'm a, like a, a I'm a son or... I'm a member of my community or something like that. Not nearly the amount of like association in terms of work and personal identity. Um, they're not so linked. Mm-hmm. Now it's, now it's getting a little weird though. Now it's like, well, I'm a social media influencer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. well, I mean, now that I'm in the realm of marketing, I too have to speak this language as well. <laughs> uh, just to talk again, I keep coming back to the writing style here, but I think that it's really, really effective. And just to illustrate this point, I actually dug up an interview with the author here, and just I just wanted to read a quote uh, to see what she thought about it. But he was asked about his writing style, and this is what he said. The phrase that I hang on to whenever I do any work is, figure out how to render the familiar unfamiliar 
and the unfamiliar familiar. For me, that tension between the familiar and the unfamiliar is paramount and essential, even at the level of the sentence. And so I think that applies to this story yeah, 100%, right? You get this kind of uncanny feeling where as you read the story, especially if you work in an office job, there's so many things that you recognize about your day-to-day existence as represented in the story. But then there are these other things that are just so absolutely absurd and outside of the bounds of, of what you would consider familiar at all. And I think that he strikes that balance perfectly in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that his own description of his writing is very... Um, apparent in this story the guy knows the guy's got a a clear grasp on the style and do you know anything about so what i had read uh was that this article or sorry this short story was actually published when he was working on his collection of short stories but this one was published years and years and years in advance of when he actually finally finished and released his book just and so this one was released gained him this like I don't know, cult appeal, I guess you would say, or some sort of some sort of level of, of fame. And then I think it was maybe even a decade later, he released his actual full collection of short stories. Because mm-hmm. um, this one was 1995, right? 95. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's, uh, it's as old as us. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Not to date ourselves. Oh, my God. <laughs> Babies <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> I wonder what... I wonder if he were to write the story today, like what he would do differently or if it'd be even more scary yeah that's interesting that's a great question and just as again familiar unfamiliar this is thing that he's talking about he wrote this in 95 20 something years ago 23 years ago and the descriptions are still very similar to a modern workplace today mm-hmm. again some of the window dressing might have changed a little bit but the bulk of our offices uh still fit this description um um almost perfectly right I feel like today would be, um, because more open space offices, you just don't have any privacy now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd maybe down with the cubicles in the modern tech office <laughs> and like, I don't know, sprinkle some like avocados in the office as well. <laughs> like, <laughs> then you have a modern tech company. But Okay, where do we want to go from here? I think one of the things that, again, we've touched on the whole way through, but there's this obsession in the story with processes even the way that you check in and check out, even the way that you go about making a, a phone call at the office, even the way that you like go ahead and gather a supply. Um, throughout, there's like three different earthquake or fire drills throughout the month. Processes, 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 and this kind of restrictive nature of the workspace where there's no real room for individual actions to be taken. You're always deferring to one of these processes that are already in place. And that is not a good workspace to work in, in my opinion. I think that they should be there. Of course, they act as a kind of groundwork. They act as a kind of framework. But they are meant to be transcended and, and tweaked and changed mm-hmm. and, and acted outside of as well. Why do you think it's bad? Do you think it just gets people into this rigid thinking? Yeah, I think, again, I don't think that the fact that they exist is necessarily a bad thing. I think that they should be there. Every company that needs to scale has processes in place. Um, but it's, it seems to me in this story, the problem is the rigidity with which they enforce said processes with no deviation and no like exception or anything like that. So yes, you need some sort of foundational framework, but you need also the individual level to be able to access outside of those. And when you act outside of a process and you do something better, 
all that you do is change the process and make it better, right? Mm-hmm. You need to have this tension between top-down corporate processes and then individuals breaking that and making them better and trying out different mm-hmm. things. And that's how you, that's how you grow. Is it really a healthy kind of sense of competition between the two things? Yeah. But then again, that goes back to what we were saying earlier about certain people, I guess, function better when they're told what to do. Like, it sounds so terrible, but like, they're not competent enough to, to transcend these procedures. So it's just better to, to just keep them in place for them. Yeah, I actually would agree with you. And especially like, before I read the story, I would totally agree with you as well. But then think of the character that, of course, is an absurd example, but who just does not think for himself at all and mindlessly follows all of these processes. Mm -hmm. And you have yourself, uh, Daniel, who's actually, because he doesn't have the ability to act individually at all in his workspace, he carries that home with him as well. He does the same porn-watching, chip-munching routine every night as well. So because he doesn't have the freedom to act outside of a framework at the office, when he goes home in his home life, there is no framework at all. So he just defers to... Boring, Standard. monotonous, the same yeah. kind of shit, right? Maybe if he so, had the ability to act outside of them at the office, he'd be able to also like have some individuality in his personal life as well. Mm-hmm. So are you kind of saying in a way that people, regardless of their abilities, should, all, should be encouraged to just think outside these rules? I think so. And I also think that you're right. Of course, there are individual personality differences that react better to more freedom versus more rules. But mm-hmm. no one falls strictly into one camp, right? Yeah. Um, you should have the option to do both to greater or lesser degrees. Um, and yeah, I, I, again, easy point to make, but steady tension between the two will always be better than staking all of your personality yeah. or individuality on one of them. Mm-hmm. It's also funny thinking about these procedures and then thinking about your past experiences at work. And thinking about some of the things that you did and then asking yourself, was there even a reason or like for those things? Do these even make sense? Yeah. And that's why you need to be able to recognize that and then act outside of them. Yeah. Perfect example. Again, I'm going to talk about Sorry to Bother You again, but very early on in that film, when he, when Cassius Green is just starting off on the telemarketing, he phones a woman who is grieving over her husband, who's just been like, put in the hospital for cancer and because stick to the script cash is green does not know how to respond and instead he defers to the process as illustrated in his booklet and it says like <laughs> use every opportunity as a selling opportunity and then he talks <laughs> to this grieving woman about like some new like encyclopedia that was going to help her well-being and that just like again absurd example but perfectly illustrates the the need for you okay yeah process in place but transcend them here like here's a situation yeah. where you can make that better mm-hmm. and like genuinely uh, uh, act as a human being um, <laughs> so yeah uh, uh, don't get me wrong rules exist for a reason but uh, uh, when broken they can become even better mm-hmm. what else we got here we also haven't talked about Kevin Howard <laughs> which one's this he's the serial killer oh god yeah okay okay so <laughs> it is at this point where yeah throughout the story like you you see like little cracks in the workplace and like the narrator will again just nonchalantly drop these like really strange things but <laughs> when you reach kevin howard in the story the little cracks 
become like huge chasms in terms of absurdity in the workplace. Um, so like, tell us a little bit about him. So Kevin Howard is goes by the name the Carpet Cutter. Um, the narrator reassures you, the reader, as the new employee, that he doesn't. He only kills strangers, so there's nothing to worry about. And it doesn't <laughs> and he, affect his work. He's <laughs> one of the best. Yeah, he's one, one of the, the fastest f- typers. Um, and then it goes on. When you read the story, you can see like how he is mo, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the funny thing about it is that the narrator tells the reader to say like to pretend he never knew if Kevin were to be caught. Yeah, because I guess it seems to be an open secret in the office, right? <laughs> Everyone seems to know. And it goes back to what I was saying. Like, the, at the end of the day, it's, the company doesn't care about that. They care about the raw economic value in this yeah. serial killer who is obsessed with his processes of killing other people mm-hmm. that are exactly the same, routine, white male adults, no older than 30, and he kills them in the exact same way. Doesn't matter because he understands processes, he knows how to follow them, and it ends up that he is the employee with the most economic value in the company because he's the fastest typist. And that's all that they care about, right? Yeah. That really um, emphasizes the idea. And they don't care yeah, about you. Of course, of course. And obviously, yes, you use these crazy extreme examples um, that would never actually happen in a real world context, but you take that extreme example and you just you dial it back a little bit and you know, it's not so far off. Um, <laughs> I think that using an extreme example helps you realize that the analog in the real world actually is absurd in its own way too, although mm-hmm. to a lesser degree. Yeah. Oh my God. Working with a serial killer. <laughs> and um, one of the most interesting things that you brought up too was, yes, of course, there are these top-down processes in the office and rules, but there are also kind of like unspoken rules that happen in the oh, office yeah, as well yeah. um, that seem to be like a product of just social groups interacting with each other as well, which was which was really interesting and of course happens in the day-to-day office as well. Um, can you think of an example? From the story or from like real life? From the story. Mm, there was one that was like kind of weird. Be quiet in the supplies cabinet because it's beside the unit manager's office and you never know, you never see the unit manager. <laughs> Yeah, who apparently just locks himself in the office all day, right? Clearly that's not written into anything, but that's just kind of like a norm that has been established as a mm-hmm. result. Or another one is like there's an accepted amount that the one character is allowed to steal food from the fridge <laughs> from other people's lunches. Then they just, instead of enforcing it, they just, everyone packs a little bit extra in their lunch just because yeah. this guy is, you know. Or like the the allotted amount of time that one of the male characters is able to like accidentally go into the women's washroom. (laughs) And I'm thinking about it now, like I'm wondering if so many of these unwritten rules, not all of them, but are a way for the social group in the office to kind of combat and act against the more top-down rules. And I'm thinking specifically about the lunch example, the guy who steals other people's lunches it specifically says that they allow it because he it's a way for him to like cathartically express his grieving for his wife dying. Yeah. So it's, of course, like the company itself and their rules don't take the personal lives into account, but these human beings interacting in a social group, they do to some degree take that into account. Okay, Barry might have broken a rule, but at the same time we're just going to allow it because we, we actually do take his personal life into account here. Mm-hmm. So it's a way for them to reclaim their autonomy in a sense? Mm-hmm. I think so. And again, it's not like it's not like anyone has formally announced that. It just just kind of emerges or arises spontaneously. 
Um, would you just, again, like there's some humanity just trying to, to, to manifest itself here. Mm -hmm. Or would you say that the unspoken rules that are established at a workplace is just a way for them to kind of deal with the authority figures from above and then feel like they have some power to enforce their own rules upon lower rung people in the social. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. I was going to say like, uh, uh, the first half of that sounded very noble and like rebelling against, but then like, <laughs> the, but then like you see the second half of your description, like, no, they fall into the same kind of power game. Right. So yeah. Uh, uh shit, dude, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> okay. I think we hit on a lot of good notes. Um, yeah. Okay. So what about just, what did you think of the story just in general, in terms of pure reading enjoyment? What did you take out of it? Reading enjoyment? I really enjoyed it. You know, no flowery, unnecessary descriptions straight to the point. And I like the dark humor element of it. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree with the dark humor. Um, I've said this like 14 times in the podcast, but I love... <laughs> I love absurd absurdity thing absurdity in fiction. It's used so effectively here, and the way that it's rolled out to a greater and greater degree as you progress through the story, starting with little breadcrumbs of it and then like hitting you across the face with absurdity. That progression is done so brilliantly in this very short story. Again, props as well to Daniel for cramming so much in terms of uh, uh, character as well into such a short amount of. Um, real estate in terms of word count and yeah just just a great a great short exciting read that makes you look at your own life situation and although this might not be the perfect example of what your day-to-day -day looks like there are things that you can extract out of this story that are familiar to you mm -hmm. and that hopefully if you read it Daniel will also use an extreme example to make that day-to-day -day of yours seem a little bit more absurd than than you might have looked at it before so kudos to him for being able to do that at least for me i guess we'll we'll see you next time and um thank you very much for the people who do listen to this show you know when for myself when i listen to a new podcast i'm not always super forgiving so for those who stick around thank you so much yeah a hundred percent like again thank you so much to the listenership as well um we know that if you've made, if you listen to every episode, you've seen the the trials and tribulations of things like audio quality and editing and workflow and stuff. But we are getting there. It's a new year. We've got things pretty much down pat. You know, all of the members of the Jackson Collective are excited. Um, we got some great stuff in the chamber. We want to start bringing on more guests as well, which will hopefully be super exciting. And we like we genuinely do want to hear more from the audience as well. Yeah, because we we see you where you're from. <laughs> we get those you metrics. Know. We get those demographics. <laughs> We know where you live. <laughs> Broadly, but yes. And, you know, to be honest, like the listenership is such a, an interesting, diverse group of demographics. Like, I don't think either of us ever would have expected the kind of people that would tune into the podcast. But it's been it's been really cool to see people from all over the world mm -hmm. um, just tune in and give us a chance and, you know, stick with us along the way. Um, <laughs> so thank you to all of you. And again, like we really do encourage you to reach out send us an email, write us a review on iTunes. We do want to engage with our audience more this year. So we want your voices to be heard, whether it's you want something to be read on the podcast or you just want to tell us something about our production or where you think things should be going or uh, criticize or whatever it is. Um, please send us our, send it our way, jacksawaycollective at gmail.com. Um, obviously, an iTunes review is great too. I think that's it. 
Well, thank you very much, Oliver. Always a pleasure. I think uh, we'll do it again very soon, perhaps in two weeks' time. Ha, ha, ha.